Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We're in that season of the year when we remember the Reformation, Reformation Week, Reformation Day. We're going to listen today to a lecture on the Reformation from our Reformation Heritage Lectures right here at Beeson in the year 2012. Our lecturer is Professor Karen Peterson Finch. She's the Assistant Professor of Theology at Whitworth University, a wonderful teacher, scholar, a woman of faith, a great communicator. You're going to love this lecture. It's one of the best lectures I think I've ever heard on John Calvin. It's about Calvin, humility, and postmodernism. Now, you may not think those three terms have anything to do with one another. Well, Karen uh, Peterson Finch is going to show us otherwise. So let's go to Hodges Chapel. The year is 2012. It's Reformation Week. And we'll listen to this wonderful lecture by Dr. Karen Peterson Finch on Calvin, humility, and postmodernism. I think I need to begin by saying that some of you may have wondered what I am up to putting John Calvin and postmodernism in the same sentence. Let me tell you what I am not going to do. I am not planning to present a watered-down version of Calvin's thinking, pair it with contemporary notions of truth and value, and then try to persuade you that Calvin was secretly a postmodernist. In fact, I greatly dislike that kind of lecture. I think, hermeneutically speaking, we would call it a failure of distanciation. But I do believe that there, the culture that we live in, that I live in, you might call it a first world culture, a Western culture. This culture has in part taken shape, postmodernism among us has taken shape because of concerns about the use and abuse of power. I like uh, Kevin Van Hooser's comment that while the chief sin of modernity was pride, that, no, that the chief sin of modernity was pride. Actually, he goes on to say the chief sin of postmodern thinking is sloth. But uh, I wasn't planning to say that. It's the pride that we want to focus on. The sin of modernity was pride. And I think that since postmodernity, modern thinking is a reaction against this pride in so many ways, it's possible that we might be able to bring Calvin's emphasis on humility into contact with postmodern concerns about the pride and abuse of power with some, with some meaning. And so you can think of this lecture today as intellectual training for evangelism. And this evangelism that we want to be trained to do today will be shaped both by the message and the method of Calvin, and both of those are humility. So let me tell you a little bit about my choice of words, message and method. The more I read Calvin, the more I observe that humility is a central theme for him, whether he's talking about the Christian life, self-denial, the taking up of our crosses, or whether he's talking about how we understand God, how we theologize our method. Demosthenes famously said that the art of rhetoric boiled down to delivery, delivery, delivery. And citing Demosthenes and quoting Augustine, 
Calvin wrote that the Christian life boils down to humility, humility, humility. And this is very true for Calvin, as I said, because humility is both message and method for Calvin. At this point, I want to do a brief excursus um, to tell you a little bit about my unusual journey into Calvin studies. And this will help you understand what alerted me personally to the idea that humility is Calvin's theological method. I received my Master of Divinity degree from Princeton in uh, 1993. And then I proceeded to work at home with children for years and years and also to work in the church as a kind of theologian in residence. And then I enrolled in the doctoral program at Gonzaga. Most of you have Gonzaga on your radar due to base basketball and not much else, but it is a Jesuit university in the Spokane area where I live. And I was fortunate to have a mentor who is a student of Bernard Lonergan, who was a very prolific neo-Thomist writer and died in the 80s. Some of you, many Protestants do not know Lonergan's work at all. So if I just tell you, he's a Thomist. And so I was working in the world of Aquinas for a long time, for seven years. And so I found myself in this rigorous seven-year ecumenical dialogue with Roman Catholic theology, the last place that I expected to be. And I want to give you three vignettes to show you how weird this was for me, how disoriented I was. The first time was going to find my uh, professor's office and walking past the statues of the saints and the popes and thinking, oh my goodness, the iconoclastic perspective was rising up in me. And, And then I also remember the distinctly uncomfortable sensation of reading and not recognizing any of the names in the footnotes, where if you've read for a while, you've read theology for a while in a Protestant setting, you begin to know, oh, yes, that person's work, that person's work. I did not know any of the names. It was very disconcerting. And in fact, I had to learn some more Latin to even read the footnotes in many cases. But the most disconcerting uh, story that I have, or the story that shows my discomfort the most, is the day when I walked into my professor's office and I asked him, do you believe in justification by grace through faith? I look back on that now, I can't believe I had the gall to ask that question. That was the rudest thing. And my professor very kindly looked at me and said, we are as Augustinian as you are. And I thought, That can't be. No, 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 no. Calvin and Luther own Augustine. He doesn't belong to anyone but us. (laughs) And so you see that that was the beginning of my relationship with Roman Catholic theology. And I asked, I assume, many of the same questions that you would ask in those circumstances. And eventually, my dissertation research focused on the role of epistemology in the documents of the International Reformed Catholic Dialogue. That's a dialogue that began shortly after Vatican II, and the last document was produced in 2007, just as I was finishing my dissertation. So this foray into ecumenism has shaped my understanding of Calvin in so many ways. The first thing that happened was I began to understand that the worldview difference between Aquinas and Calvin is not as great as I assumed that it was. 
For example, you might know, not know that during Aquinas' lifetime, there was an Augustinian revival happening in theology. And this had had an effect on the work of Gregory of Rimini and on Wycliffe and Huss. And it then became effectual in the writing of Thomas Aquinas. So you can look at Aquinas' work and you can see that the idea of non posse non peccare, which is not able not to sin. In other words, the inevitability of sin. You can see him growing more and more convinced of this between the early writings and the later writings. So that's one place where um, Aquinas is closer to Calvin than we might think. I think it's fair to say, it's brave but fair to say that both Aquinas and Calvin were scholastic in the sense that you are in this community, that you seek to discipline the intellect for the pursuit of faith. I just read recently, to my surprise, that in Geneva, the students in the academy were referred to by their professors as scholastici. This was unknown to me. In fact, Calvin's fiercest critiques of scholasticism are leveled not at Aquinas, but at the decadent scholasticism of his day, and he calls them the sophists of the Sorbonne. So with respect to Aquinas in particular, looking at Calvin carefully, we see overt criticism, we see overt approval, and then we see a good deal of tacit approval in the form of appropriation. So these insights and others have been so useful to me in protecting me against caricature of either Aquinas or Calvin. I think caricature is one of the plagues that haunts theology. I was reading in uh, John Webster, who's uh, the late British theologian, wonderful writer, and he was writing about slogans that lock the mind. We have slogans about our theologians, and they lock our minds, and self-perpetuating caricatures. So, despite these convergences, what the encounter with Roman Catholic theology has really done for me is it has shown me a particular kind of contrast between Aquinas and Calvin. And this is the great disparity of their goals and how they pursued them. And this has given me fresh eyes for Calvin's work. I would argue that the primary goal of Aquinas' theology is explanation. He wants to present Christian belief as the coherent worldview which makes sense of reality both seen and unseen, known and unknown. The primary goal of Calvin's theology, by contrast, is doxology. He's a doxological theologian. He believes that every theological inquiry should begin and end with the praise and the glory of God. And that necessitates humility in many cases. Now, I am not saying that Aquinas does not want to glorify God. And I am not saying that Calvin avoids all explanation. It is simply not true. This is a matter of emphasis, of priority. But thinking of Calvin as a theologian of doxology helps to explain the frequency of comments like this. And I quote, It is not for us to attempt with bold curiosity to penetrate the investigation of God's essence, 
which we ought more to adore than to meticulously seek out. And here's another one in the same vein. The goal of theology is to understand God's attributes, and I quote, by which he is shown to us not as he is in himself, but as he is toward us. So that this recognition of him consists more in living experience than in vain and high-flown speculation. And this makes sense, you see, because if you are a theologian whose desire and goal is to glorify God above all others, then humility is not just your message, it is your method as well. And it fits very well with what Paul said to the Corinthians. Calvin says to his readers, if we claim too much for ourselves as theologians, we will lay claim to less of what scripture is trying to teach us. Claim less to lay claim to more. And I love to tell my students that Calvin's message to them is don't do Eden theology. And I don't mean uh, Genesis 1 or 2, I mean Genesis 3. And by this he means if pride was the sin that broke the shalom of Eden, if you do pride in your theology, you are really messed up. You are really confused, and you will not get where you want to get. And so for all these reasons, I was blessed with my ecumenical encounter, which helped me to identify that humility lays at the heart of Calvin's theological method. Now, in my notes, this next section is called Caricature Alert. In calling Calvin a theologian of humility, I'm well aware that I'm touching on some of those slogans that lock the mind. And I don't know why it is. We'll talk about this tomorrow. But I don't know why, but I think John Calvin is the most caricatured of all theologians. There are a number of reasons why, as I say, we'll have that conversation tomorrow. But the caricatures abound. And they are mysteriously, perversely irrational in some cases. And and I've perpetuated them myself by the way. So there are three caricatures of Calvin that you will hear floating around my words today, and I want to identify them and tell you that we're going to hopefully dismiss them. The first caricature is that Calvin believes in a cold and distant creator God who runs the world rigidly from a distance. This is not so. This is not the case. Secondly, Calvin is anti-metaphysical, Calvin is not interested in the idea of substance or looking at reality as substance and essence. And that's not so. It's not true. And then thirdly, Calvin has no interest in natural theology. In other words, he has no interest in the question of whether we can know God from nature apart from Scripture. And that statement is also false. He has something to say about natural theology. So the caricature that we constantly encounter when it comes to Calvin is that he is Mr. No. But I want you to realize this week that to be a theologian of humility is not the same as being a no theologian. Those are two different things. And Calvin is not a no theologian. He is a theologian of God's triumph. 
And that will be tomorrow's task for me to persuade you of that. For now, my focus is going to be on how the message and method of humility that we find in Calvin equips us to faithfully present the gospel in the first world setting. So now we're moving in to what I call that intellectual training for evangelism. I could begin this training session with a broad portrait of the postmodern condition, how it appears in the arts, in philosophy, in theology, in political thought, in economic theory. With Van Hooser, I could speak of postmodernism as an exodus from absolutes and from traditional ideas of substance. But since we are talking about evangelism, I would much rather introduce you to a person. And so I'd like you to meet, metaphorically, a young woman named Lacey. Back in Spokane, part of my teaching responsibilities happen in Whitworth's evening program for working adults. And this is the place where Whitworth connects with the wider community, and especially the non-churched community. So suddenly, adults who are working to get their degrees, who are late in pursuing education for many, many complicated reasons, they suddenly find that they are supposed to take a biblical literature course, either biblical literature or biblical theology. And Lacey is one such adult. When I met Lacey, she was about 30. She was very bright and articulate. She came into my class an avowed atheist, and a delightfully noisy one. Her critique of Christianity was based on a deep mistrust of authority. And in the postmodern condition of the first world, Lacey is not alone. As I mentioned before, I do believe that many of the polemics against Christianity in that culture are motivated by a fear that power will inevitably be, ab be abused. Remember, the sin of modernity is pride and power and abuse of power. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is through Lacey's eyes, I want to look briefly at three of these polemics. The rejection of God's transcendence, the rejection of the idea that we have a substantial self, an identifiable soul, and thirdly, the rejection of meta-narratives, also called grand narratives. And I hope to surprise and delight you with how well Calvin's message and method of humility speak to Lacey's concerns, how transformational they are as training for us as we teach the gospel today. So here are the three postmodern critiques in Lacey style. The first is the polemic against divine transcendence. If postmodernism is suspicious of essences and suspicious of absolutes, then predictably the idea of God as an absolute essence, a transcendent God, an apart-from-us God, a greater-than-us God, this is so impossible in many ways for, for non-church people to accept or to believe. And I think part of the reason it's foreign, you might say, well, it's a consequence of the Kantian approach. 
epistemologically speaking, where we really don't know what lies beyond us and we really don't have the capacity to know. And yes, sometimes I do think it has to do with knowledge, this rejection of transcendence. But I also believe that the rejection of transcendence is because postmodern people take comfort in that. It's the idea that if no one is greater than anyone else, if we have a flat society and a flat universe, then there is no one who will have the power to oppress anyone else. And in my evening class, Lacey commented many times that it was impossible for her to imagine a transcendent God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, who would not end up by abusing those powers. Her image of God was very similar to Foucault's description of how authority works within a prison society. He says there, authority is aimed at knowing, mastering, and using human beings. This is how Lacey thought about God, or the Christian understanding of God. This was a God who could not help but know and master and use her. But the rejection of transcendence raises so many problems. If there is no one who sees and acts in a way that is beyond us, then who is there to hold us accountable for how we treat one another? And how we treat one another, the ethical uh, pursuit of goodness to the other, is the heart of postmodernism in many ways. But is there accountability? Now, the second polemic that Lacey represents in my mind when I think of our evangelism task is the concept of individual selfhood. Lacey struggled with the idea that we have a substantial self. Postmodern thinkers are persuaded that human beings do not possess a stable, consistent, metaphysical identity, like a soul. Since there is more than one way of telling your story, that means there's more than one you. There doesn't have to be one you. And I think that this assertion, as I said before, is directly related to the concern about the use of power. If you can escape the lie that you are a ready-made self, and I pulled that out of um, um, an article by a woman named Judith Butler, who is a feminist political theorist. If you are not a ready-made self, then you can be what you want to be, you can do what you want to do, and no one will be able to know or master and use you. You'll have a kind of a metaphysical flexibility. And for Lacey, there was a definite connection between the fact that she, she didn't want to define God. She wanted God to be something amorphous that everyone could reach, and there were many roads there, and, and there were no boundaries there. And similarly, she wanted to be a self-inflow a self that had no boundaries. And this, to her, was the source of freedom, that uncertainty, metaphysically, was freedom to her. And I don't think she's alone in stating that conviction. But the rejection of a substantial self raises other problems. Why should I love and honor my neighbor if he or she is not a consistent identity but a loose collection of actions and fragments. Again, what happens to the ethical heart of the postmodern call if 
There is not a self to be honored, to be loved, to be lifted up. The third polemic that Lacey resembles in my mind is the polemic against meta-narrative or grand narrative. The postmodern condition, as I'm sure you know, has been defined as incredulity toward these kinds of grand narratives. Um, And quoting from Giddens, the overarching storyline by which we are placed in history as beings having a definite past and a predictable future. In other words, these big stories that we craft to find our place in the universe, to define our notions of truth and value. Uh, Postmodernism is deeply, deeply suspicious of these. And the Christian story of fall, redemption, restoration, this story is one that has provoked, as you know, tremendous suspicion and distrust. Well, part of it is simply that for Lacey, the Christian story is one story among many. Why should it be privileged over the Hindu story, the Muslim story, the Buddhist story? But I think that it's deeper than that. I think that the rejection of meta-narratives is also a kind of protection against the abuse of power. You see, postmodern thinkers claim that these big stories that we make to understand ourselves, that they always conceal a bid for power. Who is telling the story? Why does that person get to tell the story and someone else doesn't get to tell the story? And the second suspicion is that these grand narratives, these big stories, claim to be universal. And you get an almost visual picture in the mind that the big story is smushing or squelching or pushing down the little story, what we call local narratives. So from a postmodern perspective, the local narrative, the little story, is always better and safer and freer from power damage than the big story, which inevitably will, will oppress someone and we'll, we'll shut them up or shut them down. As Leotard wrote, the master narrative subordinates, organizes, and accounts for other narratives. So the safest course, if you're lacy, is to hold on to your local narrative, your own individual story, to live by your own truth, not someone else's truth. But the rejection of meta-narrative, um, the grand récit, the big story in French, is this, it raises this problem. What happens when my local narrative crowds out your local narrative? What will cause me to hear another person's story as just as valuable as my own? And there is no answer for that, I have found, within the postmodern framework. So as I was writing the next part of my lecture, here's the point where I'm now going to take Calvin's theology and put it into dialogue with these concerns. And as I was writing this part, I was amazed at how much Calvin's theology of humility has to say to Lacey's concerns. And then I thought, why am I surprised? Calvin's theology is biblical. For that very reason, we would trust that it would be relevant for all times and all cultures. But there's something else at work here. 
I truly do think that postmodern people seem to be reacting against the sin of pride, perhaps not even knowing that they are, in such a way that it makes it possible for them to hear Calvin's theology of humility, or even more deeply, a biblical theology of humility. What an opportunity for gospel witness in the first world, if that is true. And so let me try to persuade you um, by, again, presenting three pieces of Calvin's theology in response to Lacey's concerns. To the rejection of transcendence, we can apply Calvin's teaching on the relationship between creation and the cross. For Lacey, a transcendent God, if such a person should exist, is automatically an abuser of power. For Calvin, however, the greatness of God is what allows him to show his love to all human beings through the mighty acts of creation and cross. No transcendence, no love, no grace, no rescue. Some of you may be familiar with Calvin's use of the word theater as a metaphor for the beauty of creation. Calvin loves to wax poetic about the human being standing in the theater of creation and being surrounded by uh, evidence of the wisdom of, and the power of God. And we'll talk about that later. And so, for example, this quote, this magnificent theater of heaven and earth replenished with numberless wonders, the wise contemplation of which should have enabled us to know God. And that will be another story in a few minutes. But for Calvin, creation is an act of grace. No one deserves this kind of beauty. No one deserves this kind of love. And interestingly, in my favorite Calvin commentary of the moment, which is uh, the Gospel of John, his commentary on John, which I would uh, recommend to you as fantastic, he, he uses this same image of theater to talk about the cross. And listen to this. For in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things, the condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men, in short, and women. In short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. So the love of God in creation and the love of God in the cross are the same love. And they're only possible with transcendence. This, this passage I said just now reminds me very much of Gregory Nazianzus's a uh, beautiful quote, he says this, a few drops of blood recreates the whole world. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that perhaps Calvin has the echo of Nanziensis in his mind. So what Calvin would say to Lacey is this, is that this God, this transcendent God, this creator God has come near to us in the weakness and suffering of the cross. And in both creation and cross, the transcendence of God does not need to be feared because its message is the incomprehensible love and grace that God has for human beings. 
And so the proper response to God's transcendence is not fear, but humble gratitude. As Calvin says, invited by the great sweetness of God's beneficence and goodness, let us study to love and serve him with all our heart. And so the connection between creation and cross demonstrates that although Calvin calls us to humility, he does not believe in a cold and distant creator who runs the world rigidly and from a distance. That is not Calvin. That is someone else, probably a figment of our imaginations. To the rejection of a substantial self, we can apply Calvin's teaching on salvation as union with Christ. In this part, I am so indebted to Charles Parti. I don't know if any of you know his work or have read his recent book on Calvin, which is sort of a compendium of all the insights of, I don't know, 30 years of interacting with students around Calvin. And that book is marvelous. And in that book, Charles Parti says that it's not truly... Well, he says, don't try to pick a center, a dogmatic center, around which Calvin's theology all falls. It's, it's, a, it's a mistake to try. But if you were to try, you would need to choose union with Christ, salvation as union with Christ. And I think he's onto something. So let's see how that plays a role with Lacey. It's, again, for Lacey, the refusal to be defined by a single stable identity is a way that she can avoid being mastered and being used by other people. But the problem was, with this thinking is that it flies in the face of what we know about how human beings attach and how they change and how they grow, and that transformation happens in the encounter of selves. I don't know if any of you have read uh, Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. But in that book, he introduces, um, I think it's Swahili, the language, the word Ubuntu, which means a person is a person through other people. We become through encounter, through union of self with others. And for a union, there has to be a self in the first place. And for Calvin, the ultimate transformation comes with the union that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And possibly my favorite quote from Calvin I am about to give to you. This is the beginning of book three of the Institutes. So long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, Christ must become ours and dwell in us. Accordingly, he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren, while on the other hand, we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him, all which he possesses being, as I have said, nothing to us until we become one with him. You might think I was quoting a medieval mystic, but no, I'm quoting John Calvin. The whole comes to this, that the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. I think that Calvin would say this to Lacey. He'd say, Lacey, your freedom is not in the unmaking of self. And your freedom is not in your own making of your own self but your freedom is in union with Jesus Christ who makes us new. 
It's in the union between the self and Christ that freedom is found. Now, in humility, Calvin does not give us a metaphysical description of the soul as Aquinas does, for example. And he does not give us any speculation on how the Holy Spirit works within the soul. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, Calvin boldly proclaims that we are made partakers of his substance, that we might experience the participation of all his blessings. If you doubt me, read Calvin's Eucharistic theology. Read his description of what happens at the Lord's Supper. We do partake of the substance of Christ in a way that is spiritual, but is deeply, deeply real. And so to say that Calvin is a theologian who is anti-metaphysical is, again, another caricature that needs to be dismissed. And then thirdly, to the rejection of meta-narratives, we can apply Calvin's teaching on the knowledge of God and self-knowledge, which is how the book begins, Institute of the Christian Religion. Uh, Calvin brings knowledge of God and knowledge of self and puts them together and shows how they complement. In fact, how they are inseparable. So remember the problem with only allowing local narratives is that you and I can each become the hero of our own stories. And then we forget to acknowledge the existence of others. Sometimes there is a tendency for postmodernism to fracture and fracture and fracture and fragment until what is the bond that unites us so that we can speak to each other, we can learn from each other, we can honor each other. And guess what Calvin calls this, this fragmenting, this splitting? He calls it pride. He says this, We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness. So I ask you to remember, if you were here yesterday, the Corinthians, whose pride was a failure to know themselves truly. And Calvin is agreeing with that statement. So this is why, and so to make this work, think to yourself of knowledge of self equals local narrative, knowledge of God equals meta-narrative. That's how this is going to work. So Calvin emphasizes that the knowledge of self, local narrative, is only made possible by the knowledge of God and of his purposes in the world. In other words, meta-narrative. So this is how he does it. If, he's, if we start with our own little story, our own fallenness will cause us to seek the holiness of the creator. And if we start with the big story of the creator, we'll soon realize how small we are within that bigger story. So either way, we are led to humility when we tell the big story of God, because that bigger story functions, and Calvin says this, as the straight edge to which we must be shaped. We need a bigger story to hold us accountable. We need a bigger story that reminds us that our neighbor's story is just as interesting to God as our own story. Imagine that. So, and I am struck, again, in terms of caricature, I'm struck that in book one of the, narrative, of the Institutes, you can run headlong into God's meta-narrative through an encounter with creation. 
it might surprise you to know that Calvin says we can discern the wisdom of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God from a glance at creation. So obviously he does have something to say about natural theology. But of course, Calvin will say that it is only in Scripture that we know the fullness of God's story. And interestingly, the fullness of it is the humility of God. Creation cannot tell us that God became incarnate. It can't tell us about the cradle, and it can't tell us about the cross. And so we need the narrative of God in Scripture because that narrative tells us what we have to do to value the other and to live for the other, and that means we die for the other. But only God's meta narrative can tell us that truth and enable us by the Holy Spirit to be something like Jesus in the way we relate to people, believers and unbelievers. So I want to summarize uh, Calvin's message to Lacey. He said, Lacey, God's transcendence is what allows him to bless us with an abundant creation and to draw near to us in the cross. He says, we become a person through other people and union with Christ by faith is our freedom. And then he says, to embrace God's bigger story teaches us the humility necessary to lay down our lives for one another. Think of this. Think of the resources for conversation with the people around you who don't know Jesus. That's what I mean by intellectual training for evangelism. So to conclude, you might wonder what happened to Lacey. And I will tell you, toward the end of the class, we all began to see Lacey change. It was astounding. These are small classes. The, the cap is 20. So I never teach one of these adult courses that has more than 20 in it. And so the, the relationships are intense. And we spend long times together, Tuesday nights, 6 to 10, and two full Saturdays in an eight-week period, or six-week period. So we knew Lacey well by this time, and we were all watching her subtly change. And then all of a sudden, we were discussing the justice and the mercy of God. And we were all shocked because Lacey stood up, and she shared with us her experience as a runaway teen involved in drug abuse and prostitution. And we were shocked when Lacey said this, here's what I really want to say to God, right in his face. God, there are some truly evil people in this world. The pimps I ran with were responsible for the suffering and death of so many people. God, you are supposed to love people. So you had better show your justice to those guys in the end. No way will I worship you if you let them get away with what they did. And the silence in that classroom was the same as your silence. And I don't know what it was besides the power of the Holy Spirit that moved Lacey from disbelief in God to having this intimate conversation with him in front of all of us. In a short time, she reversed everything that she had claimed before. Now she wanted a transcendent God, powerful enough to deal with evil, 
a God who valued every human soul, a God who was going to bring the human story to a righteous ending, a just ending. And here's what I think. I truly do think that evangelism with a theocentric theology as its basis is a very, very powerful tool for evangelism. Notice I said theocentric. A theology focused on God has an astounding way of blessing human beings. Chrysostom wrote centuries ago, the gospel produces the exact opposite of what people want and expect. But it is that very fact which persuades them to accept it in the end. And that was true for Lacey. So this is no surprise. Calvin would say this, the glory of God is when we know what he is. And in that glory, all of us are blessed. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.